I mean, that's what's so amazing about it. It, it foreshadows Jesus coming. It's got uh, prophecy in it. It, sh- it, and it also shadows Jesus coming and how his love and his grace is poured out. So I'm excited uh, to, to preach this sermon. And today we'll be uh, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. And to, to, today's title is called, A Road to Nowhere. See, I know everyone that is here today has a story of a tragic nature. We've all got stories that are, are, are tragic in our lives. Some have lost a spouse. Some have lost a child. Some, their family and their friends. A marriage has failed. Or, or a job was lost. These things have happened and we wonder, where was God in that situation? And I honestly can't answer that. I'll be honest with you. I cannot answer where God was. But what I can do, what I can do is show and tell you where God was in two stories. The story of Ruth and another story I'll share with you in a little bit. And I can tell you now with confidence where God was when a tragic event happened in my life. And I can now tell you with confidence, with great confidence, how he used that moment, that single moment in my life to change the direction of my life. And he called a sinner, such as me, to himself. See, the whole time his arms were open, reaching with his grace, and he was running to me. As I was coming home. See, so before we dig in, and some of, a, some of this is going to be hard. I want to read from John Piper's book, A Sweet and Bitter Providence. Life is not a straight line leading from one blessing to the next and then finally to heaven. Life is a winding and troubled road, switchback after switchback. And the, and the point of biblical stories like Joseph, Job, Esther, and Ruth is to help us feel in our bones, not just know in our hearts, that God is for us in all these strange turns. See, God is not just showing up after the trouble and cleaning it up. He's He is plotting the course and managing the troubles with far-reaching purposes for our good and for the glory of Jesus Christ. The book of Ruth shows us in a miniature form, but in considerable detail, how wise God's sovereign purposes really are. See, you see... We're not able to detect with perfect clarity the hand of God in the circumstances of our our life. Far less see where he is heading with them. You see, we look at our life like we're looking at a stained glass window pushed right up to our face. That's what we're looking at. See, stained stained glass, if you've ever seen stained glass in a church and the old stained glass and you look at it, it's beautiful, isn't it? 
It's beautiful. But if you put your face up against that glass, what would you see? Nothing. Just colors. Just colors. Because that's how we see God's plan for our life. We don't see everything. He doesn't reveal everything to us. We, we see. What's, what is beautiful is when you step back and look at past events in your life. And you see how God used that to move you to where you are today. And that is what the, the book of Ruth is all about. See, but as we see God's fingerprint in the story of biblical history, we can start to recognize the same or similar patterns in our lives too. And we learn to see the fingerprints of God in our own experiences. See, the English poet William Coper, who dealt with deep depression his entire life, wrote these words. God moves in mysterious ways. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. See, what's the problem with looking for footsteps on the planted sea? You can't see them because they disappear because the the sea's always moving. See, we can't see God's moves. They're invisible. God moves in mysterious ways. We do not have access to his blueprints. And we cannot second guess his work and his purpose. See, we have to learn to trust and obey him on the basis of his word to us, which is true and good. Romans 8.28 says this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Not some things. Not the good things, not the bad things, not the terrible things. All things that happen to us work for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And one of the reasons we can do this is because of the evidence given in the scriptures of his wise providence. So let's begin. In the days When the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. See, it's important to stop right here in the first verse because and examine this time. See, the author thinks it's pretty important to let us know when this story takes place. He wants us to know when this story takes place. In the days of the judges ruled. So what sort of time do you think this was? So we can just go back one page in our Bibles to Judges 21-25. And it reads, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. See, that phrase is repeated several times in the book of Judges. You see, Judges was the darkest period in Israel's history. It was a time of complete rebellion. See, I mean, just before Moses dies, he instructs Israel to do three things. Destroy all inhabitants in Canaan. Avoid intermarriage with the Canaanites. And shun worship of the Canaanite gods. You know what? Israel fails on all three accounts. 
And then a cycle begins, or better yet, a downward spiral of events. Because that's the end of Judges, okay, the text I just read. And this just gets worse and worse as it goes down. See, most of the time, the Judges, in Judges, people sin, God disciplines, Israel repents, God raises up a judge, not a guy wearing black robes and a wig, if you're in England, but more like a military leader who raises up an army. These judges aren't all righteous men, though. Just because God raised them up didn't make them righteous people. You see, the first two, Afenel and Ehad, the left-handed guy, you've got to read about him, uh, they were righteous men, but you get some shady characters that make some questionable decisions. Gideon, for instance. Gideon, the fifth judge, who won a stunning battle with only 300 men. This, this man had, 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 had gone to war. He tried to hide. He went to battle with 300 men and won. And won. And later, he hesitated to heed heed God's commands. I mean, if you have just watched your army dissipate to 300 people, you went to war against a mighty, mighty army, and you won, you would think, hey, I'm going to listen to this God, because he knows something that I don't. But we do the same thing. You see, and then... And then, you have the 13th judge, the most famous judge of all. Everybody knows this judge. There used to be a gorilla named this, after him in uh, Milwaukee Zoo. And he was an angry gorilla. I can tell you, because I remember being eight years old, and in his tire against the cage that he was in. And it was pretty scary when you were eight years old, because he was a big bad gorilla. His name was Samson. But he systematically undermined our expectations of what a deliverer ought to be. He was called called to be a Nazarite from birth. This means he was separated for God from defiling influence. He systematically breaks every vow that was made on his behalf. Instead of avoiding contact with everything dead... He scoops honey from a corpse of a lion in Judges 14, 19. Instead of avoiding contact with Philistines, he wants to marry one. Judges 14, 1 through 2. Instead of avoiding fermented drinks, he participates in a drinking party with his future Palestine family. Samson ends his life bringing judgment on God's enemy, but no rest established for God's people. See, God frees the land, then the judge dies, and the people of Israel start the downward spiral again. And by the end of Judges, there's no repentance. So this is the line, the time of Judges. And does that time sound familiar? See, we should be able to identify with this period of judges. Our contemporary thinkers and analysts say that we live in a postmodern age. But how similar? How similar are our times to theirs when everyone did what was right in his or her own eyes? 
See, you see, postmodernism rejects the notion of absolute truth. You can have your own truth, and I can have my truth. But there's no absolute truth. See, universal norms and ultimate coherence. See, so I believe that we live in the same type of downward spiral. So I think this is a perfect book to study right now. And what does God do when his people sin and he wants them back? You know what he does? God removes our security. He takes away everything that makes us feel secure. See, this first verse goes to say, there was a famine in the land and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in a country of Moab. I mean, a lot of that probably don't even mean anything to you. A famine in the land, some people would say, well, that a famine is caused by lack of rain and the water table gets low and the crops just die. But I would say that in this case and many other Old Testament biblical accounts, That this drought was caused by God carrying out his covenantal curse that we find in Leviticus 26. See, God promises what he would do if his people followed him and what would happen if they did not. In Leviticus 26, 16, he says this, Then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic with wasting diseases and fever that consumes the eyes and make the, the, the heart ache. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies will eat it. And then in verse 19, he says, I will break the pride of your power, and I will make the heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. And he does this because why? Why do you think he does that? Because he loves us. He does it because he wants to draw you to himself. He wants you. It's because of his grace. Really, after reading Judges, you have to know that the Israelites only survived this period. Because of the grace and the love of God for his people. I mean, really, if you read the book of Judges, you're like, why didn't he wipe them people out and start over again? They're a bunch of morons. But he doesn't because he loves them. You see, there's, a different, there's different views of God. See, some people say he's like a loving grandpa. I know all about this because grandpas, I'm a pop, but they call me papa, never say no. It, it is just something that is hard to tell. My sweet little granddaughters or my sweet... And my wife's probably looking at me when I say my grandson, my sweet grandson. And, and, and it's beautiful that I get to spend that time with him because I do get to tense time with him. And I spoil him because I'm a grandpa. But when you're a parent, you see, you, you, you've got to have a little bit more control. And then there's others, you see, who see God as a loving father who knows what's best for his children. See, and sometimes... He has to take things away to loosen their grip so he can call them back. So, this is where I'm going to share part of my story. I, I'm, everybody knows I'm from England. 
okay? And you've probably heard this story before, and you probably hear it a million times uh, before I uh, die. But I moved here to have a relationship with my dad. I came to visit my dad and uh, lived with him for what, um, probably a week, I don't know. Uh, it's more, probably two weeks, actually, but... Uh, my, my uh, stepmom that's over there right now says that she looked at my dad one day and says, did Ed move out? And uh, I moved in with my wife, well, my girlfriend then, and we ended up living together. Fifteen days after I met her, uh, and that was only 23 days after I landed in America. And we're still together. So that's something to be proud of, that we're still together. Because that is a miracle in itself. And that'll be the second part of my story. But here's the thing is. So we ended up getting married. uh, Going along. Me and my dad had a crappy, crappy relationship. All we ever did really is fight. Argue. It was horrible. We we got in some very volatile relationships. uh, situations, and right before, uh, in 20, 2002, uh, in October, it might have been September, around that time, I told my dad I'd never speak to him because something massively happened, and we don't need to get into the story of that, but, but I said, I'll never speak to you again. And, and after that, I didn't speak to him until Christmas Day that year, and I was in England. Me and my wife had gone to England to uh, visit my family, and we were all at my sister's, my older sister's house, and we were sitting there, and he'd gone around and spoke to everybody on the phone uh, who was there except me. And I said, let me talk. At the very same time, my dad said, is there anybody else that wants to talk to me? So he was fishing. I was saying I need to talk to him. And all I said to him at that time was, Dad, we need to talk because I think our relationship is screwed, is the word I used. And, uh, but I want you to have a relationship with your grandson. I want him to know you because I wanted him to realize what sort of granddad he had. He could, my, my dad had a choice. He could either be a good granddad to him or a bad granddad. But that's my motive at that time. That was my motive. It wasn't God's motive. It was my motive. Um, uh, on the 30th of uh, December 2002, the 31st, sorry, my father-in-law passed away. Greg. Uh, by the way, we'd had many discussions. For 11 years, my wife had had talked to me about God, and I told her, they'll no, n- never, ever will I step foot in church. I don't believe in God. God doesn't exist. Uh, for all you know, we could be created by aliens. That was my theology, by the way. I think everybody's got a theology of some sort, even an atheist. Mine was, we're an experiment. Uh, aliens created us, and we're just an experiment. That was my theology. And we would have discussions, and I actually had discussions with my mother-in-law, my father-in-law, and uh, 
he passed away. We get a phone call. We're in England. It's at midnight in England because he passed away around 6 o'clock and we get a call just after midnight. And uh, actually he died on the 30th. So we get a call on midnight of, of the 31st and that's when we found out that he uh, had passed away. And I, he had been like a father to me for 11 years. I had a lousy dad for a long time. And he had been like a father to me. So when, I, when he, it broke my heart so much, I couldn't even tell my wife that he passed away. I just handed her the phone and started crying. And uh, that's where I'm going to end the story right now. R.C. Spall says this, and I personally agree with him. Satan can do only what God allows him to do. See, here's the thing is, we have to realize, everything that happens has to pass through God's hands. Good or bad, has to pass through God's hands. See, God never ever loses control. God never, he is God, never changing, always loving, always full of grace. The text goes on to say, The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of the wife, his wife, Naomi, and names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrodites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Do you know what's funny about that text? The irony of this text. Bethlehem. Bethlehem, very name, means house of bread. This was a place with no food. And its name meant house of bread. So breadland was empty. Breadland was empty. Now, know that Elimelech had to make a choice. He could stay in Bethlehem. The empty bread basket of Judah, mourning the sin that surrounds him and trust God to provide for him. Or alternatively, he could leave the promised land where God promised to bless them behind in search of greener fields in the case of the field of Moab where food was more abundant. See, the problem though, Elimelech's choices are not equal choices. Theologically speaking, unlike us who could properly serve the Lord equally in Rockford, New Orleans, Atlanta, London, you name the place, we could do that. However, God had delivered his people from Egypt and brought them into the land of Canaan as a special place for God's people to live. They were to live there and represent God to the rest of the world, which they were doing a poor job at. You see, God had called Elimelech to live in Bethlehem, so therefore he had no business leaving to go anywhere and to go of all places to Moab. See, for the, for the people of Israel, Moab was known for several things, and none of them were good. See, the, Mo, the Moabites had originated from 
the incestual relationship between Lot and his older daughters. His older daughters got him drunk so they could get pregnant, so they could make a community. That's where the Moabites come from. Okay? If you want to read Genesis 19.30 through 38. Their king, Balak, had hired Balaam to curse Israel when they came out of Egypt. Numbers 22, 24, uh, verse 24, through 24. Their women had been a stumbling block to Israel in the wilderness. Seducing them to worship of false gods. And they had recently, during this time of the Judges, oppressed the Israelites in the days of Eglon, Judges 3. Does this sound like a place to raise a godly family? Absolutely not. This is seeking protection from your enemies. So what is it? It's decision time for him. See, before he left the promised land and he went to a place like Moab, Elimelech's very name should have caused him to pause. It literally means, his name literally means, my God is king. His God is king. Which again is ironic. His name said, my God is king. But his heart, however, that, however, that God is no more king in his life than in the life of his fellow countrymen. See, there was no king in Elimelech's life. And therefore, and like so many of us in the days of the judges, he chose to do what was right in his own eyes. So instead of following a path of repentance and faith, trusting God to provide for his needs, he moved to to follow what seemed to be his best prospects of how he could support his family, humanly speaking. You see, he chose the road to Moab. See, what road will you choose? You know, what road will you choose when things get hard? Which road will you choose? When there's a hard time, do we run into God's arms or say, I've got this, I'm going to Moab? Where every, ever your Moab is. It doesn't matter where the Moab is. It's are you running towards God or are you running away from Him? See, very often it's, it's how we react in those defying moments in life where we get to direct our own course of our future. See, in this time, the factors that weigh most heavily in our decision are those that seem most likely to provide us with comfort and security. The ones that we feel are going to wrap us up in a blanket. See, the bottom line in our lives is rarely God's will as it revealed in His Word. Especially if this seems to cut into our best life now prospects for happiness and success. See, we rarely think seriously about the impact of our choices. We rarely think about the impact of our choices. Like Elimelech, we act like God. And we make choices that seem best in our eyes without reference to God and without looking serious at the long-term effects of the implications of them. See, many of us bear the name Christians. We say we're Christians, yet our Christianity has no real impact on our lives. 
See, we say we believe his word, yet we live, we, our lives rarely reflect the words that come out of our mouth. We say we should love people. We leave this building, somebody cuts us off, and we're flipping them off. That's not loving people. That's not loving people. When you see somebody with a problem, or somebody, sometimes we don't know what they're going through. And we jump to judgment. And it's not our place to judge. See, you see, again, I, I, it's decision time. The roads we choose for ourselves often make our deepest heart commitments plain for all to see. See, we are all called by God. He loves us even when life is tough and life will be tough. We live in a broken world. We need to choose to run to God and not away from him. Here's a story about two young Russian Jews from 1940 to show you the difference a decision can make. At the beginning of the 20th century, two young Russian Jews were invited to a noonday service in a little Methodist church in New York City. One of them, Abraham Silverstone, accepted the invitation He heard the gospel, accepted Christ as his savior, and became a missionary to the Jews. The other young man, known later as Leon Trotsky, refused to enter the church. He returned to Russia and dedicated his life to atheist communism. Ultimately, he fell into disfavor with his party, fled from Russia to Mexico, and was murdered there in 1940. See, the difference a choice can make. Ruth 3 goes on to say this, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died and she was left with her two sons. See, the book of Ruth is addressing us as people who are just like Elimelech and Naomi. Just like them, we often seem to think that the grass will be greener on the Moabite side of the fence. See, the grass is always greener on the side of compromise. When you look over your neighbor's fence, sometimes you go, especially if they, they like to, to groom, their, you're like, wow, they've got beautiful grass. But you go over there and you see weeds in their grass too. You see, where is your Moab? See, the, t- the temptation to abandon the bread of heaven for the world's provision is very strong. Especially during times when we don't see where God's bread is going to come from. The option of choosing a land of compromise. In this case, Moab, instead of faithfully preserving by faith in the land of promise, is a constant theme in the Old Testament. You see, the food that the unpromised land offers seems very real, very tangible, and easily available with not much work. In contrast to the promises of God, which seem to constantly test our faith faith and our trust. See, like believers in the Old Testament times, we, to conti- we 
always seem to continue to struggle in this area, we often show a complete lack. A complete lack of trust in God's goodness and His grace. You see, perhaps we complain about our job that God has given us. Or the spouse He has given you. Or the children. Or maybe it's the lack of children. You know, we fantasize about greener grass elsewhere. We say, I would be happy if I had a better job. Or I would be better off with a different spouse. Or I would at least, if I didn't have this one. More children, that will make me happy. More money, that will make me happy. Less children, that will make me happy. You know? There's all these things that we think are going to make us happy and they don't make you happy because you're trying to find happiness in the world. You see, we are, we, when this happens, what you are doing is worshipping the creation and not the creator. See, that's where we get mixed up all the time. Instead of going somewhere and go, wow, that's beautiful. God created that. My spouse is beautiful. God gave me her to take care of. Him to take care of. Enjoying what you have, but realizing that what you have comes from God. And continuing to worship Him because of what He's given you. Not because what you have. That's the problem we have. You see, the grass always, sometimes appears greener on the other side because you're not taking care of your grass. That's why it looks better on the other side. Because the other guy's using all the right stuff to make his grass greener. But you're not taking care of your grass. But you want his grass. And by the way, when you go over to move to his house, that grass will suck too because you won't take care of it. That's the problem. That's the problem. I think that's God's grace. Does not only call outsiders to to his people like Ruth, but it also extends a hand to the people who have rebelled against him from the inside. And he pursued a path that was forbidden. You see, it goes on to say this. Though... Those, these took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpha, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. And both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. You see, here comes another point where there was a choice to be made. Should Naomi stay in Moab? Or go back home. She lost her husband. But obviously she chose to stay. And now she has two boys. Malon and Chilion. And what do they do? They took Moabite wives. Was it right or wrong for them to take Moabite wives? I mean. What's a boy supposed to do? He's in Moabite. Moabite women. That's what he ends up doing. I mean. But I think the author of Ruth is hinting that this was not a good idea. 
Do you know why? Because in the law of Moses had commanded them not in Deuteronomy 7.3. And the Hebrew word for tuck that the author uses in this text is an uncommon idiom. It highlights the illegitimate nature of their marriages. It's not the same talk or take that they use elsewhere when they're talking about becoming husband and wife. They lived there about 10 years, and then the sons died. There's a lot of dying going on at the beginning of the book. Now, Naomi is just left with her two daughter-in-laws. And by the end of these five short verses, Naomi is not being called Naomi anymore. She is just referred to as woman. Starts off Naomi, in five verses she is woman now. I think this is to show us how desperate her situation was. In this culture, women women were second class citizens who need their husbands or their children or their grandchildren to provide for them. You see, Naomi had lost everything. But there was reason for hope. Because all things, all things for his purpose. The reason for hope is God's faithfulness to his people. You see, God is committed to save for himself a people of his own. See, God does not look for perfect paragons of virtue, but rather by reaching down to rebellious sinners and transforming them into something else from the inside out. See, this is usually slow work, as it was in Naomi's case, but God is not in a hurry. We are. God's not in a hurry to change us. We are. See, this uh, all along the hard road to heaven, God's love draws us and drives us. He will not let you go. If you're his child, he will never let you go. He might let you wander, but he is going to call you back to him. See, this reminds me of my favorite parable, Luke 15. The prodigal son, it's actually the prodigal God, they mistitled it. I've got to call the authors because God is the one that cuts. Prodigal, to be prodigal means to spend everything. And God spent everything to save his son. To save his his people, his children. See, God did not sit on the couch at the end of that story, did he? He wasn't sitting on the couch. He was on the front porch waiting for his son to come home. And when he seen his son from a distance, he did something. You see, here's why I love the Bible. But for one, I love putting it in the context of what it meant in them times when Jesus tells this story. See, man used to wear dresses, by the way. And when he wore his big long gown, men, old men, like Dale, it would be it would be unseasonable. It would be it would be not allowed for, for him to show his legs. 
But if you're a lady and you've wore a long dress, trying to run in a long dress is pretty much impossible. Right? Uh, so, he would have to do something. To run to his son, he had to do something that was culturally not acceptable. He would pull up his thing and run so he could run after his son. Because he loved his son so much, he ran towards his son. He didn't let his son come to him. He didn't let his son come to him. He went to his son. See, God has sent Jesus to meet us on this road home. You, Elimelech, who left the place of famine to go to Moab. That's what we did when we ran to our sins. But Jesus Christ left all the glories of heaven to bring us a true blessing on earth. And like Elimelech and Naomi sent themselves to into exile from the Father's presence, trying to build their own kingdom rather than waiting for God to do it. Jesus also went into exile from his Father's presence. So he might rescue us from our own kingdom and grant us a true future in his kingdom. See, the God who empties us and strips away, however painful, those precious things in which we have put our trust, he knows what it is like to be stripped of all his possessions. He was naked on the cross. They took everything from him. They gambled over his clothes. He was nailed to a cross. He was left alone. Everybody that that said they loved him had left him. He was abandoned by his friends and he was hung on a cross. Every tear of loss that God inflicts on us is a tear whose cost he himself understands. See, the pain of God's chastising work is therefore never harsh. It is never more than what is absolutely necessary to turn us to himself. It is, a measure, it is measured and designed to show us our emptiness inside so that we might turn back to him. And just in case you don't believe me, I have three stories to tell you about how God controls things. Genesis 50, 15 through 21 says, when Joseph's brother saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So that they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for I am I, for am I in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. 
Thus be comforted them. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So who allowed sin against Joseph? God allowed it in their life. God put Joseph where he needed to be. And he used the sin of his brothers to put him there. And Acts 4.10 says, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. And verse 27 through 28 says, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with your Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. You see, these two sections of Acts chapter 4 were take, talking about the murder of Jesus, which was predestined. That means foreknown. It was, it was in the design. You see, when we, when we committed sin, not we personally, but Adam and Eve, when they committed the first sin and they ate the apple off of that tree, Okay, that did not take God by surprise. Before he created the universe and said it was good, he knew what the devil was going to do. He knew what Adam and Eve was going to do. He knew what the rest of us would do. We have the sin nature in us now because of that. But he knew that was going to happen. So he had this plan and he sent his son. And he knew his son had to die. This is a sinful thing that happened. It was bad and evil. It is actually the most heinous crime ever committed in the history of the universe. And the reason was is because the most and only innocent person that, have ever, that has ever lived is given the most torturous and horrible death. See, is someone guilty for this evil crime? The text says... The people of Israel, the lawless men, and are responsible for their crime. Herod and Pontius Pilate, these are the people guilty for this heinous crime. And yet, their, their sinful and evil act was ordained by God. According to his definite plan, foreknowledge, predestination, all words that this text uses. See, you see, God ordained the most heinous crime in human history. The only true innocent human being crucified for the sins of humanity. He was killed for you and me. We need to never forget that. That our Savior died. So we could have a relationship with a personal God. See, though God ordained it, this he is not responsible for it. The humans that did it are. See, God ordained it to show his glorious and wonderful grace. God is not flying by the seat of his pants. See, we need to know this because some of us think God is not, 
God is, is a janitor and he comes in and he just mops up, mops up after we make a mess. But God is not reacting. He's not going, oh no, look what them stupid humans did now. How am I going to fix this mess up? How am I ever going to work this out for good? Oh, I don't know. See, he ordains some unbelievable hard things for us. He does so, so he can bring, he he, he does this in Naomi's life, so he can bring her to a place of immeasurable joy and happiness in himself. And he can put on display for all to see his marvelous grace, redeeming rebels, sinners, and runaways like you and me. See, that's what he wants to show to the world. And he does, he's going to do this through some hard things. Some really painful things. In just a few short verses, the author of Ruth has shown us just how hard life is for Naomi. But know this, he's going to spend the rest of the four chapters showing how God is sovereign and supreme. And even these hard and painful things are ordained by God and will serve a greater good. So what's the rest of my story? See, that phone call, we rushed about. We changed our flight. It was very complicated. I never want to go through that again. Uh, and we, the first call I did after I could actually speak to somebody was my dad, who I had no relationship at the time with. And I called him and said, would you please uh, get a hold of Sue, take care of Sue uh, until we get back? Because we were in England. And we need to get back. And it was the hardest, hardest 48 hours before we got home. Because we get up on the 31st. By the way, we were having a big New Year's Eve party at my sister's house. Uh, and I, I said, let's still go. It was, uh, we were not very good company, but my family was not going to see me. This was the last time they got to see me for however many years till I went back. And so I said, let's still do it. We're flying on the 1st so we could get back. So... We uh, come back. I told my wife I'd never step foot in church. And we're at the funeral. The pastor of this church at the time was doing that funeral. And he said something. I don't even know what it was. I will tell you this. I don't even think it was a very good funeral. Uh, but I'm just, I, I was just there, right? And I looked at my wife. So she's, she's going through the shock of losing her her. Dad, and I said to her, let's go to church. Which, by the way, I told people that this church was a cult. And that, uh, so, uh, and I said, I looked at her and said, let's go to church on Sunday and see what this God thing's all about. And the first Sunday of, of 2003, so 21 years ago, I accepted Christ as my personal savior. And My dad passed away last year, and I will tell you this. Because of of what God did in my life through tragedy, 
he gave me 20 good years with my dad. But not only that, he called me to, he allowed me to forgive my dad for leaving when I was a child. He allowed me to, to, uh, he called me to, to minister and I don't know, I'm not qualified to do this. And, and he called me and I'm like, okay, God, uh, but you better show up. And I by the way, that's some, I pray for every week before I preach. I, uh, I actually tell myself the Holy Spirit is real a few times. And I always say, God, you better show up today because if you don't show up, we're in trouble. And, um, and so all of that because of something tragic in my life. And, and God has not stopped using loss in my life. I lost my dad last year. That led, that led me uh, to be asked to be a hospice chaplain for United Hospice. And today, there's a group of people here sitting in the church that lost their mom and friend and grandma. And they're here today because God isn't finished yet. He uses hard times in our life to minister to us and then to use us to minister to other people. And just to show you there's hope, I'm going to read the first verse of next week's. Then she arose with her daughter-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. See, we face suffering This is part of our human condition. Some of us are suffering right now. Many of us aren't. But my word to you is get ready. It's coming. We all take a turn. It will happen. See, our pain is real. Our situations are difficult. Our suffering is great. But our pain is not without purpose. Our pain is not for no reason at all. God has not lost control. God is not limited. He is sovereign and He is good and He is God. Even on the worst day of our lives, as much so on the worst as on the best day of our lives. And in those painful circumstances and our unbelief, unbelievable hard circumstances, things we can't imagine. God is still sovereign. He is still good. He is still God. The question we need to ask ourselves is this. It is in the hardest of difficult circumstances, in the middle of suffering moments, will we run from God or to Him? See, will these God-ordained painful situations lead us back to Him for deeper intimacy and trust? Will we cling to him hard and fast in our pain? Or will we run away from God who is working these hard things out for our good? See, will we run into him or will we take a shortcut to a dead end road? A road to nowhere. See, what will it be? The choice is yours. But I will tell you, as for me and my house, We will worship and cling to the one true God, Jesus.
So here's your homework for the week. I want you to read Ruth chapter 1, 1 through 5, the text we read today. And I want, to pr- I want you to pray and ask God to show you where you do not trust Him. Because there's aspects of your life that you haven't given to Him yet. That you need to turn over to Him. Look at that. And then I want you to look back at your life and remember what God has done in the past. Because that's the best way that we can learn. Is to look backwards at what God has already done. Not just for you, but also for His people and the people that you, you, you are close and intimate with. And how He has used hard times to call you closer to Him. And then join us next week for part two of Ruth, Fields of Grace. Grace at the bottom of the barrel. Read Ruth 1, 6 through 22 and be ready for God to move. And by the way, it's only four chapters, so if you read the whole thing, that's good too. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are an awesome God. That no matter how wrong we have been, no matter the mistakes that we've made, you are full of grace for our lives. You cover our sin with your blood. And we thank you. And we pray that that we can turn to you and run to you instead of running to our own ways. In Jesus Christ I pray. Amen.